Welcome to The Sinner, an alternative history podcast. This is episode 13 and part 3 of a three-part series on how India's borders were formed. Episode 11 was the 1857 to 1945 period. Episode 12 was 1945 to 1948. And in this episode, we cover 1948 to 1972. We start with Kashmir. Kashmir is the northernmost geographical region of the Indian subcontinent. Until the mid-19th century, the term Kashmir denoted only the Kashmir Valley between the Himalayas and the Pir Panjal Range. Today, the term encompasses a larger area that includes the Indian-administered territories of Jammu, Kashmir and Ladakh, the Pakistan-administered territories of Kashmir, Gilgit-Balistan and the Chinese-administered parts of Aksai Chin and the Trans-Karkom Tract. 1,000 years ago, the Kashmir region became an important centre of Hinduism and later Buddhism. Later still, in the 9th century, Kashmir Shivaism rose. The word Kashmir was derived from ancient Sanskrit and was referred to as Kashmira. The Mauryan Emperor Ashoka is often credited with having founded the old capital of Kashmir, Srinagri, now in ruins on the outskirts of modern Srinagar. In 1339, Shah Mir became the first Muslim ruler of Kashmir, inaugurating the Sultani Kashmir or Shah Mir dynasty. Kashmir was part of the Mughal Empire from 1586 to 1751 and after that until 1820 of the Afghan Empire. That year, the Sikhs under Ranjit Singh annexed Kashmir. The Mughal Emperor Akbar conquered Kashmir from 1585 to 1586, taking advantage of Kashmir's internal Sunni Shia divisions, and thus ended indigenous Kashmiri Muslim rule. Akbar added it to the Kabul region of his empire. In 1819, the Kashmir Valley passed from the control of the Durrani Empire of Afghanistan to the conquering Sikh army under Ranjit Singh, thus ending four centuries of Muslim rule under the Mughals and Afghan regimes. As the Kashmiris had suffered under the Afghans, they initially welcomed the new Sikh rulers. However, the Sikh governors turned out to be hard taskmasters and Sikh rule was generally considered oppressive. Protected perhaps by the remoteness of Kashmir from the capital of the Sikh empire in Lahore, the state of Jammu, which had been on the ascendant after the decline of Mughal Empire, came under the way of the Sikhs in 1770. Further, in 1808, it was fully conquered by Maharaja Ranjit Singh. In 1846, after the Sikh defeat in the First Anglo-Sikh War and upon the purchase of the region from the British under the Treaty of Amritsar, the Raja of Jammu, Gulab Singh, became the new ruler of Kashmir. Under the British crown, his descendants' rule lasted until the partition of India until 1947, when the former princely state of the British Indian Empire became a disputed territory, now administered by three countries, India, Pakistan and China. The princely state of Kashmir and Jammu, as it was known then, combined various regions, religions and ethnicities. To the east, we had Ladakh, which was ethnically and culturally Tibetan, and its inhabitants practiced Buddhism. To the south, Jammu had a mixed population of Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs. In the heavily populated central Kashmir Valley, the population was overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim. 
However, there was also a small but influential Hindu minority, the Kashmiri Brahmins or Kashmiri Pandits. To the northeast, sparsely populated Balistan had a population ethnicity related to a Ladakh but practiced Shia Islam. To the north, also sparsely populated Gilgit Agency was an area of diverse mostly Shia groups. And to the west, Punch was Muslim but no different than the Kashmir Valley. Ranbir Singh's grandson, Hari Singh, who had ascended to the throne of Kashmir in 1925, was the reigning monarch in 1947 as the conclusion of British rule on the subcontinent and the subsequent partition of the British Indian Empire into the newly independent Dominion of India and the Dominion of Pakistan. According to historian Burton Stein's History of India, and I'm going to quote here, Kashmir had been created rather off-handedly by the British after the first defeat of the Sikhs in 1846 as a reward to a former official who had sided with the British. The Himalayan kingdom was connected to India through a district of the Punjab, but its population was 77% Muslim and it shared a boundary with Pakistan. Hence, it was anticipated that the Maharaja would accede to Pakistan when the British rule ended on the 14th or 15th of August. When he hesitated to do this, Pakistan launched a guerrilla onslaught meant to frighten its ruler into submission. Instead, the Maharaja appealed to Mountbatten for assistance, and the Governor-General agreed on the condition that the ruler accede to India. Indian soldiers entered Kashmir and drove the Pakistani-sponsored irregulars from all but a small section of the state. The UN was then invited to mediate the quarrel. The United Nations mission insisted that the opinions of Kashmiris must be assumed, while India insisted that no referendum could occur until all of the state had been cleared of Pakistani regulars. In the last days of 1948, a ceasefire was agreed under the UN. However, since the plebiscite demanded by the UN was never done, relations between India and Pakistan soured. Remember, India wanted all Pakistani irregulars to leave the entire former princely state before a referendum or plebiscite could occur. That included the areas Pakistani troops were and still are today in Feb 2021 sitting on. The government of India and Indian sources typically refer to the area under Pakistan control as Pakistan-occupied Kashmir or POK. The government of Pakistan and Pakistani sources typically refer refer to the portion of Kashmir administered by India as Indian-occupied Kashmir or IOK. The terms Indian-administered Kashmir and Pakistani-administered Kashmir are often used by other sources such as the BBC for the parts of the Kashmir region controlled by each country. Kashmiri pundits, the only Hindus of the Kashmir Valley region, amounted to about 4 or 5% of the population. However, about 20% of that group had left the Kashmir Valley by 1950. More began leaving after the 1990s. According to some authors, approximately 100,000 of the total Kashmiri Pandit population of 140,000 had left the the Kashmir Valley during the decade of the 1990s due to increased militant targeting of that group. Before the Kashmir War of 1947, the Mirpur district had about 75,000 Hindus and Sikhs, amounting to about 20% of the population. A great majority of them lived in the principal towns of Mirpur, Kotli and Bhimpur. Refugees from Jhulum in West Punjab had taken refuge in Mirpur, 
causing the non-Muslim population to increase to 25,000. A similar situation occurred in the town of Rajuri with thousands of Hindus and Sikh refugees fleeing and ballooning the population. Rajuri was captured on 7th of November 1947 by tribal forces several weeks before the capture of Mirpur. The 1947 Rajori massacre was a precursor to the Mirpur massacre. Both sectarian violence committed against Hindus and Sikhs. I'm going to move on to the Sino-Indian War of 1962. By Sino, I mean China, so the Chinese-Indian War of 1962. The McMahon Line is a demarcation line between Tibet and the northeast region of India, proposed by British colonial administrator Sir Henry McMahon. At the 1914 Shimla Convention, signed between Britain and Tibetan representatives, it is currently the generally recognized boundary between China and India, although its legal status is disputed by the Chinese government. India regards its interpretation of the McMahon Line as a legal national border, but China rejects the Shimla Accord and the McMahon Line, contending that Tibet was not a sovereign state and therefore did not have the power to conclude treaties. Chinese maps show some 65,000 kilometers of the territory south of the line as part of Tibet Autonomous Region known in China as South Tibet. There had been a series of violent border skirmishes between the two countries after the 1959 Tibetan uprising when India granted asylum to the Dalai Lama. India initiated a defensive forward policy from 1960 to hinder Chinese military patrols and logistics in which it placed outposts along the border, including several north of the McMahon Line, the eastern portion of the actual line of control proclaimed by Chinese Premier Zhu Enali in 1959. China, of course, saw this as a provocation, and the Chinese military action grew increasingly aggressive after India rejected proposed Chinese diplomatic settlements throughout 1960-1962. With China recommencing previously banned forward patrols in Ladakh from, from 1962, China finally abandoned all attempts of peaceful resolution on the 20th of October 1962 invading the disputed territory along the 3,225-kilometer-long Himalayan border in Ladakh and across the McMahon Line in northeast. Chinese troops advanced over Indian forces in both tier theaters, capturing Renzangla in the western theater as well as Tuang in the eastern theater. The war ended when China declared a ceasefire on the 20th of November 1962 unilaterally and simultaneously announced that it's going to withdraw to its claimed line of actual control. Arguably, the main lesson India learned from the war was the need to strengthen its own defences and a shift from Nehru's foreign policy with China based on his stated concept of brotherhood. Because of India's inability to anticipate Chinese aggression, Prime Minister Nehru faced harsh criticism from government officials for having promoted pacifist relations with China. In short, India's forward policy was met with China's aggression and the ultimate victory in the war cementing the current border as of Feb 2021 today, the situation with China and India. India was humiliated, Nehru's policy shown to be weak and the military unprepared. Later, in 1963, China and Pakistan signed an agreement called the Sino-Pakistan Agreement. 
essentially establishing the border between Pakistan and China. It resulted in China ceding over 1,942 square kilometers to Pakistan and Pakistan recognizing Chinese sovereignty over hundreds of square kilometers of land in northern Kashmir and Ladakh. The, gov- the agreement is not recognized as legal by India, which also claims sovereignty over part of the land, thus increasing tensions with India over time. Operation Gibraltar was the code name of a military operation planned and executed by the Pakistan army in the Indian-administered state of Jammu and Kashmir in August 1965. The operation's strategy was to covertly cross the line of control and instigate the Muslim-majority Kashmiri population into an uprising against Indian rule. The military leadership believed that a rebellion sparked by Operation Gibraltar by the local Kashmiri population against Indian authorities would serve as Pakistan's bill against India on the international stage. Apparently, Pakistan's leadership specifically chose this name to draw a parallel to the Muslim conquest of Portugal and Spain that was launched from the port of Gibraltar hundreds of years ago. In August 1965, Pakistani troops from Pakistan's Kashmir regular force disguised as locals entered Indian Jammu and Kashmir from the Pakistani-administered Kashmir with the goal of fomenting an insurgency amongst the Muslim-majority population in the Kashmir Valley of India. However, the strategy went wry from the outset due to poor coordination and the infiltrator's presence was soon disclosed to the Indian military. This was the start of the 1965 India-Pakistan War. Following the operation's failure and the discovery of the Pakistani infiltration, India launched a full-scale military attack on West Pakistan, invading Pakistani Punjab and clashing with Pakistani forces, sparking that war in 1965. Pakistan overestimated its own ability to wage war and defeat India, also underestimated India's preparedness after the 1963 war that India had lost against China. In addition, Lal Bahadur Shastri was now Prime Minister, not Nehru, and he held a less pacifist approach to aggression. The Tashkent Declaration was a peace agreement between India and Pakistan signed on the 10th of January 1966 that resolved the Indo-Pakistan War of 1965. Peace had been achieved on 23rd of September by the intervention of external powers that pushed the two nations to cease fire, afraid that the conflict could escalate and draw in other bigger powers. The Soviets moderated between Indian Prime Minister Shastri and Pakistani President Ayub Khan. A declaration was released that was hoped to be a framework for lasting peace by stating that Indian and Pakistani forces would pull back to their pre-conflict positions, their pre-August lines, no later than the 25th of February 1966. Neither nation would interfere in each other's internal affairs, economic and diplomatic relations would be restored, there would be an orderly transfer of prisoners of war and both leaders would work towards improving bilateral relations. As an interesting side note, after the signing of the agreement, Indian Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri died mysteriously in Tashkent. Shastri's sudden death has led to persistent conspiracy theories that he was poisoned. The Indian government has refused to declassify a report on his death, claiming that this could harm foreign relations, cause disruption in the country and a breach of 
parliamentary privileges. I want to now fast forward five years from 1966 to 1971 and the War of Bangladesh Independence. The Indo-Pakistani War of 1971 was a military confrontation between India's Mitro Bahani forces and Pakistan that occurred during the Liberation War in East Pakistan from the 3rd of December 1971 to the fall of Dhaka on the 16th of December 1971. Meaning that later in this year, 2021, in December 2021, Bangladeshis would actually be celebrating 50 years of independence from Pakistan. The war began with a preemptive aerial strike on 11 Indian air stations, but ended just 13 days later. It is one of the shortest wars in history. During the war, Indian and Pakistani militaries simultaneously clashed on the eastern and western fronts. The war ended after the eastern command of the Pakistan military signed the instrument of surrender on the 16th of December 1971 in Dhaka, marking the formation of East Pakistan as the new nation of Bangladesh. Approximately 90 to 93,000 Pakistani servicemen were taken prisoner by the Indian army, which included 79,000 to 81,000 uniformed personnel of the Pakistani armed forces, including some Bengali soldiers who had remained loyal to Pakistan. The remaining 10,000 to 12,500 prisoners were civilians, either family members or of military personnel and collaborators. It is estimated that members of the Pakistani military and supporting Islamist militias killed between 300,000 and 3 million civilians in Bangladesh. As a result of the conflict, a further 8 to 10 million people fled the country to seek refuge in India. During the 1971 Bangladesh War for Independence, members of the Pakistani military and supporting Islamist militias called the Rezgars raped between 200,000 and 400,000 Bangladeshi women and girls in a systematic campaign of genocidal rape. The conclusion of the war successfully for India decapitated Pakistan into two. East Pakistan became Bangladesh, while West Pakistan became Pakistan. This removed the possibility of fighting Pakistan on two fronts and China on a third front. For Pakistan the war was a complete and humiliating defeat, a psychological setback that came from a defeat at the hands of a bad rival, India. Pakistan lost half its population and a significant portion of its economy and suffered setbacks to its geopolitical role in South Asia. Pakistani policymakers and institutions felt that this had dented the two-nation theory that Muslim nationalism had proved insufficient to keep Bengali Muslims as part of Pakistan. If you've followed the last two podcasts, you'll know that Bengal was divided twice before. This third time appeared a long time coming for the Bengali Muslims. I'm going to move on now to the Shimla Agreement. The Shimla Agreement was signed between India and Pakistan on the 2nd of July 1972 in Shimla, in Himachal Pradesh, in the north of India. For Pakistan, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, President of Pakistan, signed, and for India, Indira Gandhi, the Prime Minister, signed. The agreement 
ultimately paved the way for diplomatic recognition of Bangladesh by Pakistan, cementing Bangladesh's independence and freedom from Pakistan. The agreement also converted the ceasefire line of the 17th of December 1971 into the Line of Control, or LOC, between India and Pakistan in Kashmir. And it was agreed that neither side shall seek to alter it unilaterally, irrespective of mutual differences and legal interpretations. In short, that LOC, that line of control, was in effect an international border recognized by two countries, bar calling it one. However, the agreement has not prevented the relationship between the two countries from deteriorating to the point of armed conflict most recently in the Kargil War of 1999, where again Pakistan sent army irregulars across the border, or the LOC, to occupy the Kargil Heights. Let's wind back to 1947 and away from the Pakistan conflicts. At the time of Indian independence in 1947, India was divided into two sets of territories – one under British direct rule and the other under the guardianship of the British crown with regional princes having control over their own internal affairs. There were over 500 odd such princely states inside the British Raj, almost a federation of authoritarian monarchies inside an imperial dictatorship. Early British plans for the transfer of power such as the offer produced by the Crips mission, recognized the possibility that some princely states might choose to stand out of independent India. This was unacceptable to the Indian National Congress, which regarded the independence of princely states as a denial of the course of Indian history and consequently regarded the scheme as a balkanization of India. In the 1930s, as a result of the federation scheme contained in the Government of India Act 1935 and the rise of socialist Congress leaders such as Jay Prakash Narayan and the Congress began to actively engage with popular political and labour activity in those princely states. By 1939, the Congress's formal stance was that the states must enter independent India on the same terms and with the same autonomy as the provinces of British India and with their people-granted responsible government. As a result, it attempted to insist on the incorporation of the princely states into India in its negotiations with the British, but the British took the view that this was not in their power to grant. So what were the princes' position? The rulers of the princely states were not uniformly enthusiastic about integrating their domains into independent India. The Jamakhandi state integrated first with independent India. Some, such as the rulers of Bikaner and Jawar, were motivated to join India out of ideological and patriotic considerations, but others insisted that they had the right to join either India or Pakistan or to remain completely independent or form a whole union of their own. For example, Popal, Travancore and Hyderabad announced that they did not intend to join either dominion. Hyderabad went as far as to appoint trade representatives in European countries and commencing negotiations with the Portuguese to lease or buy Goa to give it access to the sea. Portugal owned Goa at the time. 
and Travancore pointed to the strategic importance to Western countries of its thorium reserves while asking for recognition. Some states proposed a subcontinent-wide confederation of princely states as a third entity in addition to India and Pakistan. Popal attempted to build an alliance between the princely states and the Muslim League to counter pressure being put on rulers by the Congress. A number of factors contributed, but eventually this resistance ultimately collapsed. And most non-Muslim princely states, or should I say nearly all non-Muslim princely states, acceded to India. An important factor was the lack of unity amongst the princes. The smaller states did not trust the larger states to protect their interests, and many Hindu rulers did not trust Muslim princes. Others thought that integration was inevitable and hoped to build bridges with Congress, hoping to gain a better say in shaping the final settlement. In July 1946, Nehru pointedly observed that no princely state could prevail militarily against the army of independent India. In January 1947, he said that independent India would not accept the divine right of kings, and in May 1947, he declared that any princely state which refused to join the constituent assembly would be treated as an enemy state. The limited scope of the instruments of accession and the promise of a wide-ranging autonomy and other guarantees they offered gave sufficient comfort to many rulers who saw this as their best deal they could, that they could strike given the lack of support from the British and they had popular internal pressures to accede. Between May 1947 and the transfer of power on the 15th of August 1947, the vast majority of states signed instruments of accession. A few held out. Some simply delayed signing the instrument of accession. Pipadola, a small state in central India, did not accede, for example, until March 1948. The biggest problems, however, arose with a few border states, such as Jodhpur, which tried to negotiate better deals with Pakistan, with Junagar, which actually did accede to Pakistan, and with Hyderabad and Kashmir, which decided to remain independent. The Nawab of Junagar, a princely state located on the southwestern end of Gujarat and having no common border with Pakistan, chose to accede to Pakistan, ignoring Mountbatten's views, arguing that it could be reached from Pakistan only by sea, there was no land connection. India believed that if Janagar was permitted to go to Pakistan, the communal tension already simmering in Gujarat would worsen and refuse to accept the accession. The government pointed out that the state was 80% Hindu and called for a referendum to decide the question of accession. Simultaneously, they cut off supplies of fuel and coal to Janagar. Severed air and postal links sent troops to the frontier and reoccupied the principalities nearby that had been acceded to India. Pakistan agreed to discuss a plebiscite subject to the withdrawal of Indian troops, a condition India rejected. Hyderabad was a landlocked princely state that stretched over 82,000 square miles in southeastern India. While 87% of its 17 million people were Hindu, its ruler was a Muslim, and its politics were dominated by a Muslim elite. The Nazim was prepared to enter into a limited treaty with India, which gave Hyderabad safeguards not provided for in the standard instrument of accession, such as a provision guaranteeing Hyderabad's neutrality in the event of a conflict between India and Pakistan. India rejected this proposal. The Nizam was also beset by the Talgana rebellion led by communists, which started in 1946 
as a peasant revolt against feudal elements and one which the Nizam was not able to subjugate. Sadar Patel now insisted that if Hyderabad was allowed to continue its independence, the prestige of the government would be tarnished and then neither Hindus nor Muslims would feel secure in its realm. On the 13th of September 1948, the Indian army was sent into Hyderabad under Operation Polo on the grounds that the law and order situation there threatened the peace of South India. The troops met little resistance and between 13 and 18 September took complete control of the state. The operation led to massive communal violence with estimates of deaths ranging from the official one of about 27,000 to 40,000 to potentially 200,000 or more. Hyderabad was ultimately absorbed into India. India also integrated hundreds of other such princely states, creating the singular political and geographic entity that we know today as modern India. The annexation of Goa was the process in which the Republic of India annexed the former Portuguese Indian territories of Goa, Daman and Dew, starting with the armed action carried out by the Indian Armed Forces in December 1961. In India, this action is referred to as the liberation of Goa. In Portugal, it is referred to as the invasion of Goa. The armed action was codenamed Operation Vijay by the Indian Armed Forces. It involved air, sea and land strikes for over 36 hours and it was a decisive victory for India and ending 451 years of rule by Portugal over its remaining exclaves in, in, in India. Over the past three episodes, you were walked through the folding of the East India Company into the Crown, the Indian independence movement, partition, refugee crises, Kashmir, China, Bangladesh, all the way up to the 1972 Shimla Agreement. We looked at how India as an aggressive entity absorbed the princely states. We looked at how it annexed Goa into India and Hyderabad into India. For people not from the region, the disputes may seem petty, but for people living there, it's all very real, rooted in history. What makes it yet more complex and compelling is that it's also rooted in religion. To add to the complexion, there are three nuclear powers at play here, India, Pakistan and China. Can we blame the British for anything? Yes, sure, they were the imperial power, broke and unable to contain the bubbling religious and nationalistic movements in the 1940s, they needed to leave in a hurry. And they were right. They didn't want to deal with all this. The inevitable and, in my view, necessary partition brought about bloodshed the British could never prevent, and it was better for them to stay out of it. Clement Attlee and Mountbatten preferred it to happen outside their watch, and that is why I assume the dates were also brought forward. The pot had simmered too much and there were no available troops and money to compensate. Partition was a hot mess, but probably the least worst option. Jinnah was right, so was Patel. Events since 1947 have demonstrated, well at least to me, that a unified India would have led to communal violence on such a mass scale over such a long period of time that it would have put this partition to shame. It would have simply been horrific. Pakistan, as a homeland for the Muslims of British India, was the right thing to do. The two-nation theory, however, is something that is philosophically flawed. 
India today in 2021 has the planet's second largest Muslim population and Bangladesh, a Muslim country, split from the homeland for the Muslims of British India. In addition, there are Muslims today probably scratching their heads living happily in Muslim and non-Muslim countries with people who are not Muslims. So philosophically, the two-nation theory isn't worth its weight in gold. But the partition itself was necessary. Give it whatever reason you want. I think Jinnah recognised the risk of conflict, as did Patel. Outside the Gandhian ideology, the real issue was that there was a division, whether you like it or not, and it's better to deal with it early and quickly. Partition offered that. Jinnah's Muslims probably felt they got a raw deal. A country split into two halves. Jinnah's two biggest errors were one, believing that getting the homeland was a win for the Muslims of British India and that the two-nation theory philosophy means something. It didn't. And two, that he would inherit more land. How he thought that is a mystery, since most of the country remained non-Muslim. So why did the Muslims and non-Muslims hate each other so much? Well, in my view, the East India Company arrived just in the nick of time. The Mughal regime was being replaced by smaller Sikh, Hindu and Muslim rulers. The Hindus were asserting themselves, so the arrival of the company suited the Muslim rulers where they could at least delay the onset of non-Muslim rulers. For the Hindus and Sikhs, it was also some help to see the company arrive since it was better than being under Mughals or fighting them. It is often stated that Indians and Pakistanis are so similar. But I actually disagree. They are not. They are very different. Lahore and Gauhati, Karachi and Kochi are extremely different. Other than some minor Punjabi cultural similarities, there is no other. Conflict was not only probable between religions, but eventually between ethnicities. The miracle is, honestly, that conflict inside and between these countries has been so limited. So when the British did leave, all these simmering issues came to the fore, multiplied tenfold due to divide and rule. But honestly, it would not have taken all that much to divide then rule. The butchery was latent and bubbling to get out. The British crown simply put a lid on it and gave the two enemies someone else to hate for a while. What gave the Republic of India the upper hand over the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, as it still does today? Well... In 1947, as in 2021, the Indian leadership and its institutions are strong. There is depth and quality in its leadership. When Gandhi was assassinated, there were plenty of other visionaries to steer the country. When Jinnah died, the vision died too, leaving Pakistan a hot mess over the next several decades, leading to the humiliating loss of East Pakistan and the Shimla Accord of 1972. It is clear from these podcasts that India, in the 1947-1972 period, was no pacifist country. It went to war and it absorbed princely states. But because of its secular democracy, its leaders and ultimately its geopolitical strength, it was always destined to be the winner in the war between India and Pakistan. If we look for a minute at the never-ending and ever-lingering problem of Kashmir, well, this principality and area was cobbled together by the British, i.e. Christians, before that by the Sikhs, before that by the Muslims, before that by the Buddhists, and before that by the Hindus. 
The region and culture of Kashmir are old, but as a political entity it is recent, as recent as 1947. Pakistan felt it had a right to the land and decided to take it by force. Sadly for Pakistan, India had exactly the same plan. That's why there is a line of control and not an international border there. It is a stalemate. It's not for me to pontificate on a solution. I cannot fathom a solution until terrorist activities end inside India. India blames Pakistan for those activities. From a Pakistani perspective, the failure to ignite enough anti-Hindu sentiment inside India is a grave foreign policy failure. The sad truth is Pakistan has been let down decade after decade by poor political leadership, too much interference from the intelligence service known as the ISI, and massive overreach by its military. For all of India's problems of governance, and there are so many, foreign policy is not one of them. There will be no peace between India and Pakistan until Pakistan either splinters into smaller nations or unifies with someone with a mandate and a vision who can work past the powerful military and intelligence agencies. Since 1947, Allah has not paid much attention to the plight of India's Muslims who wanted a homeland of their own. The biggest single geopolitical challenge of 2021 and later for both India and Pakistan will be Pakistan and Bangladesh's circle of influence with China. These are raw and complex topics. The topics are still relevant, and I take full responsibility for any offence I may have caused. There was no other way to do this. I hope the three episodes, episode 11, episode 12, and episode 13, gave you an understanding of the years 1857 to 1972, and how the events from those years shaped India's borders today. You have been listening to The Sinner, an alternative history podcast. Thank you for listening.